Straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki. Are you listening to this episode right now? That might seem like a silly question. Of course you're listening to this episode right now. But some philosophers and physicists say that there is no such thing as the now or the present. Instead, they say that all moments of time equally exist. But that might undermine your free will. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Jeff Kapersky to discuss physics, philosophy of time, and free will. We chat about how physics does not necessarily undermine presentism and human freedom, and we even get into a bit about the relationship between physics and theology. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear in the show, you can send me a message at rtmollins.com. Ready or not, here's Jeff and I talking about time. Enjoy. So in contemporary physics, like they've kind of captured the popular imagination in lots of different ways. So because of like sci-fi movies and TV shows, the average person seems somewhat familiar with ideas like a multiverse or time travel. And people, you know, they're pretty familiar with concepts like the butterfly effect. And then because of that, they'll have worries about free will. So, so Jeff, today, what I want to do is I want to discuss some of the different issues related to time and free will, and then some of the implications that physics has for this debate. And in particular, what I want to do is I want to look at like a debate between two rival ontologies of time, which are presentism and eternalism. So, so Jeff, why don't you just start by defining presentism and eternalism for us? Okay, well, let's start with presentism. It has two parts. So first, there really is such a thing as the passage of time. So past, present, and future, that's a fundamental distinction. That's, that's part of reality itself. And then second, only the present is fully real. So what we call the past, what we call the future, they, they don't literally exist. So of course we have, we have memories of the past because that used to be the present and the future could go all sorts of different ways. But the future and the past, according to the presentists, they aren't, they aren't out there. They don't, they don't exist. So time machines, they aren't just beyond our technology. Time machines are impossible because there's nowhere to go. There's mm-hmm. just you know, no past, no future out there. So there's no complete timeline uh, like what you see in, in a lot of science fiction. There's, there's just the, the changing present. So eternalism says just the opposite. So the eternalist thinks that the past and the future, they, they are fully real. They are out there in some sense. And in fact, for the eternalist, it's the present that, that doesn't exist. There's no special place in, in the timeline that is the present or the, the now. It just feels that way to us. So for the eternalist, that, that little time slice of you beginning your very first podcast, that's, that's just as real as the one that I'm, I'm talking to right now. And both of them feel like they're in the present. And, and they always will, uh, when in fact, the, the, the flow of time, what we sense as the flow of time, that's really just an illusion. There is, there is no passage of time. So these aren't, these aren't the only two positions in the philosophy of time, but they're the main players, I think. Yeah, because I know there's a lot of weird positions like these uh, growing blocks and mm-hmm. these shrinking blocks. There's these yeah. moving spotlights and there's these views where like all the branches of time exist, but then mm-hmm. some of the branches just start like falling off as, mm-hmm. the, as the, the present moves forward. And I'm just, those are very, very weird. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so we'll just stick with like these two very common views. So, yeah. so now historically though, presentism, I mean, that's been the dominant view in the Western thought. Like, I mean, in fact, like I'm only aware of some sort of disagreements within like medieval Buddhism about mm-hmm. whether or not presentism or eternalism is the case. Mm-hmm. But today though, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. It seems like eternalism is the dominant view. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in your mind, though, you say that eternalism is something that we should not want to embrace because you think it undermines freedom. And I want to explore that in, in, in a bit here. But before we get into that problem, why don't you just kind of tell me how you understand free will? Okay. I, I believe in, in fully caffeinated free will. So it's okay. what <laughs> philosophers call li- libertarian freedom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, of course, there are constraints on, on our freedom. I, I don't have the freedom to levitate right now. But within those constraints, there's, there's nothing that, you know, say, made me wear this shirt this morning rather than, rather than something else. That, that was up to me. So while our decisions, they are certainly influenced by all sorts of things, those, those influences, they don't determine our actions. So you might want that chocolate chip cookie, but you don't, you don't have to eat it. And whether mm-hmm. your hand reaches for the cookie or not, that's, that's up to you. So if you, if you think instead that our choices are determined by the laws of nature or psychology or something else, then you don't believe in, in libertarian freedom. Okay. So it's really up to me in some sense, and I really could do something else. So yes. like the cookie example, oh, that's a tricky one because like right now I really want a chocolate chip cookie, <laughs> yeah. but it really is up to me about whether or not I grab it and eat it. Like yes, I could no, do otherwise. No matter how much you really want, then yeah, you could make the choice. It might be difficult and, and I guess there's the, your, your biology is influencing you to go and, and have that snack, but yeah, you could do otherwise. Yes. Okay. So that's, so that's free will. So now explain to me why an eternalist ontology of time undermines free will. Okay, so libertarians typically believe that it's in our power to change how the future goes. So I can look up on my bookshelf right now, I can see a book that I haven't touched in five years, and and that's where it's going to stay for the foreseeable future. But I could, if I wanted to, I could stand up right now, go to my bookshelf, pull that book off, put it on my desk. And so now I've changed how the future will play out ever so slightly. It's not a big change, but it's, it's change. And so the problem for the for eternalism, remember first, there's no flow of time. The eternalist mm-hmm. denies a flow of time. There's no moving present. All, all of time is just out there, including what we think of as our future. So if the future exists and it doesn't change, then all of our future choices exist as well. They're, they're also out there, part of the future. So you, you might not know what you're going to eat in 12 days for, for dinner, 12 days from now, but that event is just as real for the eternalist as you talking to me mm-hmm. right now. There's a, there's a fact of the matter about what you're going to eat on that day. And more importantly for free will, you can't change that fact. It's just out there fixed in the timeline. So if you think that having free will requires the ability to change how the future goes, then no, you don't, you don't have free will because the eternalist says that the future is fixed and nothing that you we do now can change that. And so that's that's the worry if you're a libertarian about freedom. Right. So I guess I want to kind of clarify, I guess, some of the ways it's fixed here. So so sometimes people will talk in terms of uh, alethic uh, uh, closedness for the future, mm-hmm. meaning like there's propositions about the future and those are settled. They have a determinate truth value. Yes. So that I will eat a cheeseburger tonight, like that's true. It just is settled. Yes. Um, but the but you're gonna, but the eternalist though, they're going to say, well, there's more to the story than just that. It's also ontically settled because that event of Ryan eating the cheeseburger that exists. And there is like, there's a, a Ryan there, a temporal part of Ryan there eating the cheeseburger. Yes. And it's just as real as this, this um, temporal slice of Ryan that I'm talking to you right now. So it's mm-hmm. all the slices are there. They're equally real. They all feel like they're in the present, but yeah, it's, it, it exists. There's, there's a, there is a fact of the matter. And, and then again, like I said, there's nothing that you can do today. That's going to change that fact. It's, it's right. fixed. Cause I find myself at this particular slice in the timeline 
and th- there's nothing I could do to change what's going to come about. If, what's I guess for what's relative uh, or future relative to where I'm at located because mm-hmm. that is that is settled. Like the yep. book has been written. There's only one. There's only one future. There's only mm-hmm. one time. It's not. It's not like Star Trek where you know mm-hmm. things can change and it gets rewritten. It's it's just the way it is. So it seems to me that like the affirmation of human free will would give me a reason to reject eternalism in favor of presentism. However, there's a lot of philosophers claim that like presentism is just inconsistent with contemporary physics. But there are many different theories within contemporary physics. So let's just work through some of these theories and see if they really do undermine presentism. So tell me about the special theory relativity. Like what are some of the basic claims in the special theory? Well, first calling it relativity, that was a bad idea. And, and even, <laughs> I, even Einstein didn't, didn't like the name. And, and the reason is, is it makes it sound as if everything in the old physics was, was real and now just everything's relative, anything goes. Mm. But, but that's not true. If you go back to classical mechanics, velocity is relative. And you've, you've experienced this. Just think about cars moving past each other you know, on, on a road. If you're in one of those cars, then the oncoming cars, they seem to be like they're going a lot faster than you are, um, especially when you compare it to cars in your same lane. They don't seem to be going fast at all. And it just mm-hmm. depends. How are, how are they moving relative to you? But most things in classical mechanics, that they aren't relative. So things like the mass of the car, the height of the car, those things don't change. They, they don't change from one observer to the next in classical mechanics. But when we switch over to special relativity, again, you have some things that are, are relative and some things that, that aren't, but the list changes. What counts as relative and what counts as fixed changes. And one of the things that's not relative in special relativity is the speed of light. So it doesn't matter if you're traveling toward a light source or, or away from it, everyone's going to measure the speed of light to be three times 10 to the eighth meters per second. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it's actually it's actually a very big deal because okay. if that's the thing, that's the same for everyone. This is what Einstein said. That's that's the thing that remains fixed. Then there's all sorts of other quantities that are going to be relative, and they're going to be things like length and mass and the passage of time. So according to relativity, clocks in that other car in the other lane, if you could see into that car and compare the, the speed that their clocks are ticking away compared to clocks in your car, it's going to look like like they're moving too slowly, like time is mm-hmm. passing too slowly in that other car. And it's even the case that that other car will seem to be squished in one direction. It's 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 shorter than it was uh, when it was in the parking lot next to you. Now, although the reason we don't, the reason this is kind of new or you know it seems kind of odd is that we don't notice any of these things mm-hmm. unless you're traveling like half the speed of light. And so that's, okay. that's why it's kind of a, a discovery that wasn't obvious to Newton. Right. Because I don't normally travel that fast. So I don't normally see these things. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. Now, when you say I, like uh, anybody would uh, would measure light to have the same like a uh, rate, like it's mm-hmm. it's not just like me because like I'm terrible at measuring things. I'm terrible <laughs> at my math. But you're talking about like an ideal observer, right? Yes. Anyone who yeah. had had the equipment and could you know say, OK, you know. You, you could you can measure you know the speed of a, of a baseball you know out there on the field and you have other equipment that can that measure you know how fast mm-hmm. light is traveling from one place to the other yes we're all we're all gonna agree it's it, it travels at three times ten to the eighth meters per second okay cool so now explain to me how this might conflict with presentism okay well that's a big question so mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna start an answer and then I'm just gonna jump to the end of the story and then if okay. you want to fill in um, uh, we'll see if we have to do that so sure. one, one of the things that's relative in special relativity is the passage of time so now let's say let's say we are in, in two spaceships and we are moving really fast 
past each other. We're going to disagree about time. So from my perspective, two events might happen at the same time. They're, they're absolutely simultaneous with one another. But from your perspective, one of those events clearly happens before the other. And according to relativity, we're both right. So in my reference frame, the two, the two events, they really are simultaneous. In your reference frame, they're not. And there's nothing more to say about it. There, there just is no one right answer. Students always want to know, well, who, you know, if there's a disagreement about who's, who's wrong. And it turns out, well, there, nobody's wrong. We're, we're both right about this. Um, right. Because that's what always confused me when, uh, when I'm reading about these things. I'm like, there, there, no, there has, someone has to be wrong. It's got to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. And even, even in, in my book, um, in some of the illustrations I use, uh, it, it kind of looks like the intuition is that one of the people, this is the guy who's right. And it's this mm-hmm. other guy, but no, it's, it's, there's, nobody, there's nobody who's right according to relativity. So the question becomes, how, how do we make sense of these disagreements? Uh, and the answer seems to be that we're just fundamentally wrong about space and time. We, we, we tend to think that we live in three dimensions of space, mm-hmm. and then time is this completely different sort of thing, right? It has nothing to do with space. But, but in relativity, it seem, relativity seems to entail that reality is, is four-dimensional, and the fourth dimension is time. So really, it's all, it's all one big thing. It's space-time. And so all these disagreements then about the flow of time and, and mass and length, um, and the reason is, is because we're trying to describe a four-dimensional reality in, in three-dimensional terms. Now, why, why is that a problem for presentism? And it's that just like all of space exists right now. I mean, you believe that. Andromeda is out there. You can't see it, but you know, it, right. it, it's out there. It seems that all of time fully exists right now as well. So it looks like what the eternalist has been claiming all along, that all of what we think of as the past and the present and the future, they're all fully real. And there's no moving present that the whole of space-time just exists. It's just out there, an unchanging block universe is what some people call it. So, mm-hmm. so relativity, yeah, it seems to favor eternalism over presentism. Okay. So I want to make sure I'm following along. So I want to be a diehard presentist and I want to say like, you just can't be mistaken about these sorts of things. Like what, somebody has to be wrong and somebody has to be right about, mm-hmm. you know, when things happened. Mm-hmm. But if I really go with this special theory of relativity, there isn't a correct answer. Right. And in fact, there is no objective present moment. Right. Well, then the eternalist can say, well, that's what I've been saying all along, guys. Like, come yes. on. Like, yeah. Uh, and so this whole idea of like flow of time, you know, like, you know, come on. It's not there in our story of the world on special theory of relativity. I've already been giving you the story anyway. So come on. It's just I, I, I have the right view here. Right. That's, so it's kind of the idea. It was it was merely a philosophical debate. And then mm-hmm. relativity steps in and says, well, there's a winner. Uh, and and mm-hmm. the winner is the, is the eternalist. They they right. had the right view of time all along. And now, yeah, science proves that it's true. Yeah. So the right. eternalist is pretty happy about this. Yeah. It really right. Okay. So, yeah. Whereas the presentist is not. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So presentist, like they've developed uh, a lot of different kinds of responses here to say, like, this is just really like an apparent conflict. It's not a real conflict between mm-hmm. presentism and relativity. And so one option is I could say, well, remember that like that space time stuff you were telling me about? Like, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna be an anti-realist about that. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to be a realist about space time. So mm-hmm. tell me, like, what exactly is anti-realism, and then what is it to be an anti-realist about space time? Okay, well, there there are different kinds of anti-realism, but most agree that a theory or at least some piece of it can be can be useful without being true. So you know, think of models in say 
pre-Copernican astronomy, right? They, they worked. They worked for centuries, but they, mm-hmm. they weren't true. The, the Earth was never the center of the universe. So an anti-realist about space-time it believes in the mathematics of, of, of special relativity. It's useful. It works. Uh, but they don't believe that space-time literally exists. So why? Why, why might you want to you know, make this move? Well, first, space-time wasn't part of Einstein's original formulation of relativity. So it's, it's not absolutely essential to the theory. Second, in some ways, uh, it conflicts with quantum mechanics because there are some events in quantum mechanics where there is a truth about about these time questions, about simultaneity. There are some events where, yeah, they they do happen simultaneously according to to quantum mechanics. So there's a right answer uh, about some of these disagreements. Relativity says there can't be a right answer, though there is no right answer. And then third, and this is really the most important one. We know that special relativity isn't the whole truth because it only it only works in the absence of gravity, but gravity is kind of hard to avoid. So strictly speaking, everyone is an anti-realist about special relativity. We, we know it isn't exactly right. So I mean, that's going to sound really shocking to a lot of people here. Uh, so <laughs> so we'll get into like maybe why it's not quite so shocking. But so I want to make sure I'm understanding this view. So if I'm an anti-realist about a scientific theory, mm-hmm. I'm saying I, I believe in all the equations of the theory. But I don't think it's really describing like the fundamental story of the world. All this theory is doing is just giving me useful predictions. That's that's the most popular form of anti-realism. Yes, it, it, it is mm-hmm. useful. So yeah, use the equations. It'll, it'll mm-hmm. help you get around in the world. But as far as the, the stuff that it says exists and, and and the like, then no, you don't you don't have to believe that. It's merely it's merely useful. It's not it's not true. Right. And then you alluded to a couple of reasons for why it might want to be an anti-realist, such as, well, it conflicts with, with uh, quantum mechanics and it conflicts with, uh, uh, well, it doesn't give me the story that uh, general relativity gives me. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to get more into some of those issues. So let's get to this whole idea of being like shocked by uh, saying we're going to be anti-realist. Mm-hmm. So uh, like I would imagine lots of people would, if I said, well, I'm just an anti-realist about scientific theories, they're going to think that's a bad thing. Right. Uh, so in your book, In the Physics of Theism, you point out that anti-realism is actually pretty common for different theories. So can you give me like an example of like a widely used theory that most people would just take an anti-realist stance on? Sure. There, there's really, there's lots of them. I mean, you, you just start with, say, um, Newtonian mechanics. So strictly mm-hmm. speaking, no one no one today believes in Newton's laws because they've been replaced in some ways by relativity and in other ways by quantum mechanics. But look, they're, they're incredibly useful. Um, you know, engineers, mm-hmm. engineers learn almost nothing about quantum quantum mechanics because they, they just they don't need it. Another example, um, electrodynamics. In, in electrodynamics, um, there are some cases where the effects occur before their causes do, which is kind of embarrassing. So we just, <laughs> we just ignore that. We just act like, well, no, that really doesn't happen and, and, and just move on. So it's in there. It's in the equations. Um, yeah. that's, that's kind of a prediction. But yeah, we know that's not real. So yeah, we're anti-realists about, about that part. And then things like, like fluid mechanics. Fluid mechanics treats matter as if there, there aren't any atoms. There aren't any, any molecules. But of course, we, we know. We know that that's not right. So the bottom line here is we're all anti-realists to, to some degree or other. So it may sound like the presentist is making this this revolutionary, you know, shock. But no, it's it's not revolutionary. We, we just we make these sorts of judgments um, all the time. So I guess to to kind of tease out this idea that it's really not that shocking. It's quite common. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was in this physics and philosophy society during my PhD, and one of my friends in the physics department, he was going around trying to see who would join the society. Okay. Uh, and and so he's asking people like you know different physicists. He's like he's like now do you think that uh, when we're developing our theories, you're 
really trying to capture reality or or just come up with useful predictions. Right. Yeah. And the overwhelming response was just shut up and calculate. Will. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> we don't care. Right. That's. He was so distraught by this. Like he was just like he's like I thought we were like really like doing this like interesting endeavor to explore the world and everybody's just you know they're all anti-realist you know and he was yeah. so so distraught by this right. and so I we went to go do a second PhD in philosophy as a result of this. So I just <laughs> so it really it really tickled me. But it was very funny to see. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize how like how widespread anti-realism really is. Right. And uh, so so yeah. That's, so it's not like uh, presentists are special pleading here. Like this is pretty common stuff. That's that what what in your example that was. Mm-hmm. I think that's a more global type of anti-realism. So you do okay. you do have people that just in terms of like science in general, they're just anti-realists about about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Or maybe um, some anti-realists they want to they want to play that card when it comes to uh, unobservable entities. So they're they're realists when it comes to like you know. Um, an elephant, because you can you can see that, and you know elephants are mammals, so they're real about that. But when it comes to say electrons, well, you can't you can't see those; they're mm-hmm. they're fundamentally unobservable. And so, yeah, you might be there's people that say we should be anti-realists about those things that we can't directly see. Um, so I'm 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 trying to be a little more narrow here. I'm what I'm right. saying is there are, it's not it's not a global anti-realism, mm-hmm. but we're all anti-realists about certain parts uh, of, of lots of different theories. Sometimes because of idealization, sometimes because of other things. Right. And so the presentist in this one case could say, I'm only being an anti-realist about like this, the geometry of space-time. Yes. Like, it doesn't really describe anything else in the world. The That's future it. points of space-time, the past points that are seen to be in there in the block universe. Yeah, we don't we don't think those are, are are fully real. Yes, that's right. But as far as you know, using I'm not I'm not dismissing. It's it's great, you know. But yeah, uh, yeah. But as far as some of these these metaphysical implicate, yeah, that, that yeah, I'm an anti-realist about that. Okay, so let's look at a slightly different twist on some of these things here. So, so there's this uh, presentist Bradley Martin that I that I really like, uh, and so he says we can just like safely ignore any conflict between presentism and special uh, special relativity, and he says that this is the case because special theory of relativity conflicts with observations like in astronomy, and it's just not the fundamental theory of physics anyway. So, like, why should I even care? Mm-hmm. And so this leads to a discussion of other theories that do seem to have a claim on being fundamental physical theories. Mm-hmm. So someone might say, you know, the, the general theory of relativity, like that could be the fundamental story of the world. So why don't you just kind of tell me a bit about the general theory? Okay, well, special relativity doesn't account for gravity, like I said, and so that's that's one big reason why we know it's not quite right. But general relativity does. And so this, including gravity, that sounds like a little thing, but but actually it's huge. It makes makes a, a huge difference. So, and it, the reason is mainly because gravity. This will be the other shocking. Gravity in uh, general relativity uh, is not what we were taught in school. Um, mm. It's not. It's not a force. Gravity is instead due to the warping of space time. And I know that sounds like Star Trek, but but Einstein thought of it first. Right. So um, when it, when it comes to say light coming near a star, that light doesn't move in a straight line. The mass of the star will distort space time so that the light bends around the star. But and this is this is the weird part. The the warping isn't caused by gravity. The warping is gravity. So gravity. For general relativity, it just is a, a geometrical property of space-time that makes it look like objects are being pulled by an invisible force, but there's no force. 
So according to general relativity, classical physics, it was just, they were just wrong about this, about the notion of gravity being a force. And then once you've got this idea of, of space-time and the warping of space-time, and this is the true nature of gravity, a whole bunch of other things followed. So you get the Big Bang, you mm. get an expanding universe, you even get black holes. I mean, this this all starts with general relativity. So now, do you think it's safe to say that like in certain ways, like the general theory is, is better for presentists than, say, like a special theory? Yes, absolutely. And the, the main thing is that general relativity seems to allow for, for an objective flow of time. So if you think of if you think of space time like a salami, as one mm-hmm. does, um, then often I do exactly. Um, then general relativity uh, allows you to to cut it into slices, and this is what physicists call a, a foliation. And and then once it's sliced up, time can be defined as moving from from one slice to the next. So here, let me fill in a couple of details. Um, mm-hmm. this, is, this is how this is going to work. First, you, you do need an expanding universe. So okay. got that. And in a universe, in an expanding universe, there are going to be processes, local processes that we can observe. So things like the, the cooling of radiation left over from the Big Bang. We know that's out there. We can measure it. And we can define one tiny bit of cooling to be, to be one tick of the clock. And so in principle, then, there could be clocks like this all over the universe, all synchronized to the to the same process. And if we stitch a bunch of these clocks together, then then each tick represents one time slice. So so time then, or what physicists call um, cosmic time, is the progression from one one slice to the next. So when we say things like the universe is 14 billion years old, okay, this is what we're talking about: cosmic mm-hmm. time. And so for the presentist, the, the main thing here is that. There, there is, within general relativity, an objective flow of time. And so that's a, that's a big step in the right direction. Right. Okay. So in special theory relativity, I lost this flow of time. And so mm-hmm. then as a presentist, I'm like, oh, gosh, I need that. I can't describe mm-hmm. the world anymore. And now the general theory, it seems like, well, I've got it back now. I've got this cosmic time. There's a way of bringing it back. Yes. Okay. So then, like, why can't I just, like, stop right here and just say, like, you know, I've got my flow of time. So no big deal. That's all I need to defend my presentism. Why can't I do that? Well, not everybody likes cosmic time, so there, okay. there, are, there are objections. Um, and one worry has to do with the, the idealizations involved. So the, the models here treat matter like a fluid. So it says that, that um, all matter is spread out evenly throughout the whole universe. But of course, we know that's not true because matter in the, in the real universe, it's clustered into galaxies. There's, there's places where there's a lot of matter and there's big gaps where there's not. So is this a problem? Is the fact that you know the models treat matter differently than the way it is in the real universe? Um, physicists who, who like cosmic time they say, well, well, yeah, th- there there are idealizations here, but they're good ones. <laughs> you know, these are the these are the same models that gave us the Big Bang and, and lots of other stuff. So so they're pretty good. They they don't really think this is, this is a big problem. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to make sure I'm getting the idealization part right here. So yeah, yeah. when I talk about idealization. I'm basically what I'm doing is I'm kind of like simplifying the way, like my picture of the world. And there might be a lot of complications and a lot of like a weird, fuzzy things going on in the world. And I just kind of scrub that from my mathematical equation, make it as simple as, as, as possible. Is that kind of right. the idea? Sure. So any, like even in freshman physics, we always talk mm-hmm. about um, these, these blocks sliding down frictionless planes. Well, mm-hmm. you know, there are no fr- frictionless planes. They, they don't sure. have those over in the lab somewhere, but, but it makes the math a lot easier. If you can just, yeah. if there's like just a little bit of friction, it's like, it's not worth taking account of then yeah, you can just ignore it. So in this case, it's um, the, the, the idealization is that 
accounting for where all the galaxies are. Um, that's that's kind of complicated, and it's just easier if all of matter is just uniform, right? It's all mm-hmm. spread out evenly, and we don't have to account for you know a little bit of matter here, a little bit of matter there. It's all it's all nice and spread out. Yeah, it makes it makes the math a, a whole lot easier. And I'm and I'm all in favor of that because I don't like doing math. So right. anything that makes it easier, <laughs> good for me. Uh, but so someone who's an eternalist, they might say, well, look, you're getting this cosmic time from a highly idealized theory. And, you know, like that just doesn't describe the world we're in. So that's one way to object. But then you were saying, well, look, uh, we can say it still gives me, you know, things like Big Bang cosmology. It gives me this way of measuring how old the universe is. Like, right. it, it may, sure, it's idealized, but it might not be so idealized that I need to be an anti-realist about these sort of things, an anti-realist about cosmic time. Is that right. kind of the move? Yeah. So, you know, there's there's idealizations all over the place in science mm-hmm. and especially in physics. They're, they're really hard to avoid. And so the question is, is it a, is it a bad idealization? Is, is it, you know, taking us in a, in, in, a, in a wrong direction or is it just, you know, for the sake of convenience? And so, yeah, most, I think, I think most physicists think in this case, yeah, it's just, it's just for the sake of convenience. Um, so it's not, it's not misleading us in a fundamental way. Okay. Now, another kind of objection that sometimes comes up in these sort of discussions about cosmic time is that, well, there's lots of ways you could slice up this salami that is space time, right? right. And you just, you just arbitrarily picking one, like I, right. I could just pick a different one. So right. why pick this one to be the special moment, the, the, the objective moment that you presentist want? Right. Well, some ways of doing the slicing. There are different ways of, of doing it. You know, I talked about you know, these these clocks and cooling of, of the background radiation. There are other processes you could use, but but some of them really are just objectively better than others. So mm. space space time it isn't it isn't like Jello. It's got a, it's got structure that can help guide the slicing. And so some ways just really are are better than others. So it's 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 not arbitrary in the sense like yeah you can do it any way you want. Um, there really are some ways of doing it that are are far better objectively better based on the physics than than others okay so i want to get into something else a little bit different here so in your in your book uh, the physics of theism you point out that physics didn't really stop with einstein and and like personally i mean that made me really happy because because uh, when i'm reading through all these different like textbooks on philosophy of time like they just kind of go special theory of relativity and they just stop there as if like nothing's happened since then mm-hmm. and i just i just i'm just like i because i'm so convinced of some of the arguments we've run earlier I, i'm just like who cares about special theory of relativity like w- like we've done so much more since then mm-hmm. so today we have quantum mechanics which conflicts with the general theory of relativity so could you explain like maybe the problem of putting like general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics together? Why can't sure. we do that? Sure. We've, well, we've already talked about gravity in general relativity being this geometric property of space-time rather than a force. Okay, But that's not true in, in particle physics. So when you, you hear about all those, those funny particles like quarks and neutrinos and stuff like that, those are all part of what's called the standard model. And, and in the standard model, there are four fundamental forces. There's electromagnetism, the strong and weak nuclear forces, and then gravity. Uh, it's, it's also in there. And according to the standard model, these all work through an exchange of particles. So like for electromagnetism, it's it's photons. Photons are what make electromagnetism work. Now, we haven't we haven't yet discovered a graviton particle, but but particle physicists believe it exists, and that really is the, the true nature of gravity and all this stuff, all this stuff with the standard model, it all relies on quantum mechanics. That's the foundation. Mm. So the problem is that gravity in general relativity is this completely different beast than it is for, for particle physics. So one of them says that it, that gravity is a force that's that's mediated by particles. And the other one says, no, no, it's just it's just the geometry of space-time. It's, it's not particles. And right now, nobody knows how to put those two together. 
Mm. You, you just you, you do one approach in one class in grad school, and then you do you take a completely different approach, <laughs> sure. and, and, and just and you just don't talk about it then. Uh, but it, people who do, the people who are trying to put this together, most physicists are betting that the right answer will, in time, look more like quantum mechanics than relativity. So I, I, as far as I can tell, the majority think that Einstein was wrong. Uh, gravity is not just a distortion of space-time. In fact, some physicists um, even think that all this emphasis on, on space-time, that it's, it's been bad for physics. And mm. we, we should just be teaching, we, we should be teaching students, undergraduates and graduate students, so look, gravity is a force and all this, this warping of space-time business, it's a useful idea. You know, you can do it in your general relativity, class, but, but it isn't true. It's really not the way things are. We should we should be thinking of it as a force. See, I, there was, I was at the Higgs Center for Theoretical Physics a few months ago, and I can't remember the name of the speaker, but it, the title of the talk was something like Space Time is Dead. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and the whole like starting premise was like, look, we all know this is just a fiction. We got to do something else. Let's just get over it. And right. like, I'm sitting there going, I need to tell all my fellow philosophers of this <laughs> because they keep getting obsessed with this. And nobody in the room questioned all the physicists in the room are just like, well, yeah, of course. But, you know, what are we going to do next? And he's like, well, here's right. what we'll do next. And so I'm like, OK, so this is just apparently assumed and known. Whereas in the philosophy of time textbooks, they're like, look, special theory says this presentists, what are you going to do? You know, can't question it. It's in the no. textbooks, you know, yeah. and this is what they, this is what they teach. So yeah, it's gotta be right. No, it's, yeah, it turns out that, yeah, that's, I, 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 there are some people that are betting that, that Einstein was closer to the truth. And so there are people on both sides of this debate, mm -hmm. but I, I'm pretty sure, yeah, the, the majority think, no, um, that's the space time, the warping space. We gotta, we gotta get past that and, and do something else. Yeah. Okay, so we've got this conflict now between general re relativity and quantum mechanics, and you're and you're saying, you know, maybe quantum mechanics will win out. Well, where does that leave the presentists here, though? Because it might not necessarily be like a good thing for the presentists. So, where, where does that leave us here? Right. Well, like I said, no, nobody knows today how to resolve the conflict. But yes, there are lots of proposals. There are a lot of ideas floating around out there, and some of them are just a lot friendlier to presentism than than relativity was. So there are things like. There's, there's a couple I'll just name, uh, canonical quantum gravity. Uh, there's Harava gravity, which I've only seen one other philosopher talk about. Um, uh, and so these, um, I'm not going to try to describe them here. They, they all get um, very technical. All this gets very technical sure. really yeah. fast. It's all cutting edge and it's all kind of speculative. I, I wasn't even sure whether I should mention this stuff in, in the book because we could discover something tomorrow and these right. all just go away. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's the danger of talking about cutting edge physics. But the bottom line here is that research in physics might just solve the problem for, for the presentists. So if, if relativity currently favors eternalism, whatever replaces relativity may tip the scales back in the other way. So you have some presentists uh, who just say, we should we should just wait and see. Maybe all these worries about time and relativity, maybe it's just a temporary thing and, and physics will take care of it all in due time. Yeah, because I know that's like Bradley Martin's take. Like he's just exactly, like, yes. what's the safe bet? I could bet on physics, but like, but then when I look at the history of physics, it's littered with false theories. Mm -hmm. Or I could just kind of sit tight with my presentism, which is so incredibly intuitive and so obvious, and just wait for the physicists to battle it out. And, you know, here's some different theories in quantum mechanics that fit very nicely with my presentism Meh, you know okay i'll just keep going with this that's the that's where the safe money is so, and it's, a, li it's yeah. a little bit stronger insofar as we, we, we know there's going to be a successor theory it's not just mm -hmm. this is what's in the textbooks today maybe it'll change in 100 years let's wait and see it's yeah. that we know it has to change because we yeah. know there's conflict between quantum mechanics and relativity so so yeah it, it'll change um so let's see how it changes right usually when i run that sort of uh thought 
by like theologians they just look at me like i'm the most unscientific person in the world like they're like you're just an idiot you don't know and i'm like i'm sorry this is what the philosophers of science are saying right, yeah. like my business friends are saying they're like you un, you know just yeah uneducated fool so right i get uh, that yeah. Yeah. i understand so uh w- one last thing i wanted to, to get into here so so in your book on the physics of theism you pointed out something that i, I think it's really important for my listeners to hear so you say that relativity conflicts with you know a lot of different things within science and then you point out that physics is really just sort of like a patchwork of different theories, each which have like a limited domain of applicability. And then you express doubt about how humanity, you know, maybe humanity can even just never discover like what this fundamental physics is. So I guess kind of in light of that, what advice would you give to listeners who are trying to think through the implications of physics for their theological or their philosophical beliefs? Right. So we we ignore a lot of problems when we teach science. I think part of that pushback you're getting from theologians is because mm-hmm. they, 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 they've been, we, we actually do promote this view in the way we teach science that everything fits together in this nice, neat package. If it's in the textbooks, then that's just true. And in graduate school, you start to realize that that's really not the way it works. Mm. What we have instead are, are theories and models and laws that, like you said, they, they only work within a given domain, maybe a, at a particular scale or a particular energy range. But then once you get out of that range, the models don't work anymore. And so what you do is just you just switch to something else. You, you ditch that model and, you, and there's this other one over there that you can now start working with. So like here, here's a really simple example. I've, I've mentioned a couple of times that, that fluid mechanics treats matter as if it were all smushed out and continuous uh, rather than, than being made up of molecules. But of course, when you, when you zoom in too closely, when you get down to too mm-hmm. small of a scale, that doesn't work anymore, right? You, you start you start bumping into structure that that your model ignored because there really are molecules. And so if if you have if you have to work at that small scale, if that's the phenomena of interest, yeah, you can't you can't do fluid mechanics anymore. You just have to stop that, and you got to switch to to something else. And this this sort of jumping. From, from one domain to another, it's everywhere in science. And for a long time, everyone just assumed that, you know, eventually we'll be able to weave all this stuff together in a nice seamless whole. Uh, but most philosophers of science, yeah, they, they, we, don't, we don't believe that anymore. Um, science looks a lot more like a quilt than, than a sheet. So why is this important? Your real question is, mm-hmm. you know, so, so what does this mean for, for, you know, philosophers and theologians? Well, if there's a, if there's a, if there are tensions between different domains of science. In fact, there are tensions within physics itself. Right. Then it's not that surprising that that there might occasionally be tensions between science and metaphysics. So, yeah, we have we have some trouble putting presentism together with relativity. Uh, and we have trouble putting relativity together with quantum mechanics. And we have trouble putting quantum mechanics together with chaos theory. Uh, that, that's look, that's that's just the way it is. Um, the world is complicated and and science is hard. So, what I'm not saying is that metaphysicians and theologians can can just ignore science? I actually think they, they do too much of that already. Sure, um, but, but I, I do think I do think that a lot of care has to be taken before saying what science demands or, or what science rules out. Science it just doesn't wear its metaphysics on its sleeve, uh, and that's why you have debates like this on the philosophy of time. So you're asking theologians to not dogmatically proclaim certain things about what science says. And that's, I think it's gonna be really hard because we're really used to dogmatically proclaiming this is what, you know, the tradition says or what the scripture says. And now you're asking me to do this in this other domain, like, where, like, I can't do that. I don't know. That sounds like too much uh, hard work for me to have to be like, ah, I need to like, carefully qualify my claims and like, you know, say I'm not really certain. Yeah, well, again, there's, there's, there's really no choice. We can't, you can't be a realist about 
everything that's in the textbooks. It's just because you, you can't put it all together. There's mm. conflicts. It's just that, again, we, we tend, because of the way we teach science, especially to undergraduates, we, we, tend, to, uh, we tend to ignore the, the tensions and the difficulties. We're just trying to get everybody up to speed on how to use the equations and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I think it gives, it gives this false view that there really aren't. There's, there's you know, some deep problems here, maybe, there, but we, this notion of the quilt-like structure of science, yeah, I think that's mostly hidden. And again, it's, it's, it's pedagogical. We, we, mm-hmm. we, we make it hidden because it's just not important, uh, especially for, for undergraduates that are trying to get their, you know, their feet into all this stuff. Right. Because I can see why when I'm trying to take an undergraduate class, say like just on chemistry, you don't need to like introduce, here's all these weird, complicated things about reality. We don't know. You're right. like, here's a few little things here or there. So how to fit it all together? Eh, figure that out later, later in life. So something yep. like that. Yeah. 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 Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show today. Like, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Oh, well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. I, I appreciate it. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on open theism and the God who trusts. 